Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Chris Gajano. I'm a pastoral intern here at King's, and it's, uh, it's just my, uh, my great privilege to be able to um, preach from the Word this morning to you. Um, we're, in, we're continuing our study through the Gospel according to John, the Invisible Made Visible. Um, last time I was up here, we were in chapter 9, and we've made uh, a lot of progress since we're, we're in chapter 13 this week. Uh, we're going to be closing out the chapter, starting in verse 21. So if you have a Bible, please turn in there with me to uh, John 13, uh, or uh, launch your... Uh, your, um, your Bible app and uh, navigate to John chapter 13, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back there. We've made them available for you. And if you don't own one, then we want you to take it with you and to have a Bible take home with you to, to read and to, uh, to study and to love. <clears throat> okay, so starting in verse 21, chapter 13, <clears throat> John writes, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the bread, dipped a morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into, G- Satan entered into Judas. <clears throat> and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas was, had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone... Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you also, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I, follow you? Can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have, you have denied me three times. And Lord, bless the reading and the, the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. <clears throat> so we're right in the middle of the, uh, the Passover feast between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, that's where we're at. We're in the upper room there. Um, if we looked last week, we saw that Jesus' public ministry had finally come to a close in chapter 12. And it, it closes with um, Jesus inviting everybody, all people in the crowds, to come to him, to leave the darkness of sin and to cling to uh, the reality of, of the light that's now in the world himself. And that's an offer that stands today too as well. That all those who come to Jesus Christ can leave the darkness of sin and have life in Jesus. Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, please. Uh, take a moment and just dismiss the kids. I'm sorry. It's in my notes too. I don't even know why I didn't see that. I even highlighted it. How about that? So I'm so sorry about that. So we were happy for, uh, for the children's church. It's a great ministry, and uh, the kids get to hear about Jesus in the gospel as well. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we're in the upper room, and 
Um, Jesus talking to his disciples. They're, they're, they're having this Passover meal. Jesus had just left um, the public ministry. Now he's in, in this intimate setting with his disciples. And he is... Um, <clears throat> they're commemorating this time of year that they did every year. It's a very uh, important feast. And all the Jews would come from, all, uh, from, from everywhere around to Jerusalem. And they would celebrate this time where the, they, um, they were passed over from God's judgment. Um, what happened was, if you remember, they were in slavery to, 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 um, to Egypt under the, the thumb of the Pharaoh. And <clears throat> there's this, this last plague that the Lord unleashes on, uh, on Egypt as a form of judgment is by uh, sending the death angel, the angel of death, who came and killed the firstborn of all those that were in Egypt, um, all those who did not take um, cover under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So all those who had put uh, sacrificed the lamb and put the, the, uh, the blood over the, uh, the doorposts were passed over from God's judgment. <clears throat> and so that's... Um, that's what Jesus and his disciples are commemorating. They're, they're commemorating this time of year and, and God's grace to them by bringing them out of slavery. And interestingly enough, John gives us a, a little interesting note here where he says that they were reclining at the table. And we kind of, uh, Pastor Lou mentioned this last week a little bit too, is that it was a different way of eating, uh, even for them. It's foreign to us in our culture, but lying down and lounging and eating is what, what they were, was, was going on here. And they didn't do this for every meal. They did this but they did do it for the Passover meal, we know that. And so what that looked like was there's a table laid out with the food, and, um, and around it was this, this U-shape of, uh, of couches, and they would kind of lie on those couches with an arm down and then with another arm free so they could pass food to each other, they can eat um, from the table. And they did this for a, a particular reason. Uh, they did this in direct contrast to the way that they ate the original Passover meal, which was done in haste, and that was at God's command. Um, if, you look in, if you look in Exodus chapter 12, uh, God commands his people this. He says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with the staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So God has, had uh, commanded his people to eat this in such a way that, it, that he was preparing them for the journey that, that um, was ahead of them, their journey out of Egypt. And it wasn't just for efficiency's sake. Uh, it was probably more efficient for Moses to have a million plus people all packed and ready to go with, their, with uh, everything in hand. Um, but it wasn't just for that efficiency. I think it was also for the fact that God was, was teaching his, his people that they should uh, trust in him. That they can rely on the fact that that um, his command was was the same as a as a guarantee for their slave from their freedom from slavery, and that's similar to what we see happening here in this in this uh, the supper with Jesus and his disciples. That Jesus is effectively preparing his disciples for what lies ahead, and that is the cross, and then also the life that that was lived uh, in light of the cross after the cross with that that new uh, the new life that they would have in him. And he does so, we see, in love. Uh, we see that right, right from the beginning in chapter 13. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world and to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, says he loved them to the end. And that is what we will see permeate the rest of this chapter and the entire discourse. And I, th- I would even argue all the way to the end of, of, this, uh, of this gospel. Last week we saw Jesus show his love, proclaim his love to the disciples by stooping down, the creator of the universe stooping down and, and washing the, the feet of his creation. <clears throat> he washed it just not only as an example, but first and foremost as just a, a way of, of teaching them that the cross 
was, was their way, their way of, of cleanse, cleansing, that Jesus had cleansed them, was going to cleanse them by his suffering and death and resurrection um, just that lay just ahead. And then he uses the same illustration also, though, to give an example as to how we ought to then live uh, together in love for one another. And, as, and I think we'll see as, as uh, we move into this, um, this passage this week that, um, again, like I said before, love is going to permeate the rest of this chapter. And so let's look at, let's look at this chapter in, that, in those lens, uh, through that lens, through the, the lens of uh, gospel love. Um, we're going to do that under three headings this morning. First, love rejected. Secondly, uh, through love commanded. And then thirdly, through love perfected. So let's first look at love rejected. <clears throat> Verse 21 says, uh, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus had just pretty much dropped a bomb on his disciples. This, this piece of information uh, was just about to floor them. Uh, he had kind of given them a little hint uh, earlier in the chapter, uh, we see in, in, in verse 10 and verse 7 through 18, that he says that, um, that all of you are clean, but not all of you. One of you is not clean. Um, and then he also says, I know whom I've chosen, but not all of you are chosen. So he's given them a little bit of a hint that there's a wolf there amongst them. Um, but they don't seem to fully grasp, the disciples don't really seem to full, fully grasp what's going on until Jesus makes it explicit and says, one of you will betray me. Uh, and then that got their attention. Uh, we see here that uh, also, if, you go, if we go back and look throughout the book, John hasn't kept this, this as a mystery to his, to his readers either. Uh, he's given us a little bit of a, a, um, uh, an addendum to whenever he says Jesus' name, he says the one who would betray him. So we're given a little bit of a, of a hint. But um, the, think, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Or put, put yourselves in their, in their sandals, I should say, their dirty sandals. Um, they didn't know. They, there was no way for them to read between the lines. Uh, and, and they had lived with Jews for three years, and they, none of them had a clue that this was coming. And in fact, it, it, it even shows here in the passage they still didn't even know what was really going on, even after Jesus discloses the identity of his betrayer. Um, it says here that Peter, uh, who was the first one to, uh, to take this information and try to, try to find out more what's going on, he, he looks over at the, Jesus, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, who we know to be John. So John, the writer of this gospel, is the, is the disciple who Jesus loved. And he motions over to John to ask Jesus. So, and as we read here, John is very close to Jesus. He's not just uh, intimately and in, in you know, relationally, but also physically. He's, he's right beside Jesus. And, and as we know from the, from the culture of the day that the, two, that the host, that the, the place to the right and to the left of the host, directly next to that host, were the places of honor. Um, for that for that particular meal, so it looks as though John was probably at Jesus' side, probably his right side. Um, so all he has to do really is just lean over, and that's what he does. He leans over, and, and right away he's at he's at Jesus' chest, and he's able to whisper in his ear, "Lord, who is it?" And then Jesus answers him and just says, uh, uh, "Whether it's right to John directly, or maybe to the entire um, to to, uh, to the entire table there, that the one who takes this morsel after I've dipped it." Uh, and I give it to him, that is the one who is going to betray me. And so that's what Jesus does. He dips the, he dips the bread, and he dips it either in, in oil, or um, it could be a, few, a fruit, fruit puree. Um, so whatever, it depends on what time it is during the meal that this is taking place. But he, and then he gives it to, uh, to Judas. So most commentators uh, agree that this act of passing bread after dipping it um, was an act of friendship 
an act of love that was being offered to the recipient. Um, and the fact that Jesus is able to pass it directly to Judas looks as though, as, as though Jesus, Judas might have been to one of those, those places beside Jesus as well. So he might have been in a place of honor. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is that uh, Jesus passes this bread and shows love for Judas. Um, and that's an act of love. And that just, just as Jesus had shown love to Judas earlier, knowing he would betray him, he, he, he stooped down and washed his feet. Um, now he's showing them another uh, example of he's he's giving him another um, uh, offer of love, and this meal isn't the first time either. Think about the fact that Jesus had been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. He had, had uh, a relationship had been formed, and they had shared life together, and they had ministered together. So the question is, Jesus showing love to his betrayer. Did did he know that Jesus was going to betray him? Well, I, th- I think. It, we, could, if we can reasonably assume um, from this passage, but also if you look through the entire book uh, up to this point, we see who Jesus is, right? That he is the eternal Son of God, that he is the one that is, has been with God um, from the very beginning, eternally existent, who created, who created all things, who sustains uh, the universe by the word of his power, as the writer of Hebrews says. So <clears throat> he's the one who, who also proved this by all these miracles that he had performed, that he is who he says he is. So, of course Jesus knew. In fact, we could, we, could, we could even say that he knew when he called the disciples to follow him, that he knew that, it would, that Judas would betray him. So the real question is not really um, whether he knew if Judas was going to betray him. The real question is, did, uh, why did he invite Judas to follow him to begin with? Um, I think from our text we can see two reasons why that is. There might be more, but these are the two that, that I find in the, in the passage this morning. So, the first one is that he had called Judas to follow him so that scripture would be fulfilled. If you look, look back at verse 17 and 18, uh, if you know these things, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. That he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So here Jesus is, is quoting from Psalm uh, chapter 41. Uh, your, your Bible might even have a little bit of a, an asterisk there. It tells you where, where it's from. It's one of David's Psalms. And he's quoting this scripture to show that Judas' treachery, which was really also Satan's work according to verses 2 and 27, which we'll get to in a little bit. But <clears throat> Judas' treachery is, was, was not an obstacle to God's redemptive will, but it actually plays into God's predetermined plan to save sinners through the cross. So, Jesus calling Jews to follow him was so that his redemptive plans would be accomplished. And notice here that it says that Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. Uh, we see that we could see here that he's not chosen Jews in the same way that he had chosen the other 11. That there's there's a, a marked difference here. Um, why is that important to know? Well, I think it's important because um, we, can, we, we can know for sure that all those that God chooses and brings to himself through saving grace, that, that that person's salvation is secure. Amen? And that once Jesus has gotten a hold of you, gotten a hold of your heart, uh, there's no losing your eternal security. Jesus said so much in John chapter 10 where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
So that, let that be a, a source of encouragement this morning, that if you, are, if you belong to Jesus, you, you belong to him, there's, there's no losing that, your, your eternal security. Um, the second um, place in this text where we see uh, the reason why Jesus called Jesus to, to himself was that it would actually um, solidify, bolster the belief of those who he had chosen for eternal life. And the immediate context is, is his disciples, but that's also uh, us today as well. He says in verses 19 through 20, I am telling you this, you this now, I'm telling you this about my betrayal, he's saying, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And the original language is that you will believe that I am. He uses the same word that, that uh, uh, God discloses himself to be his name uh, with Moses in the beginning. I am, Yahweh. So even though... Jews had lived this, this life with Jesus and the other disciples. He still was not one of them. That's what Jesus is saying. That Jesus knew that this, would, this, this information that was about to play out in, in, into reality, they were going to see this playing out, this, um, was, it was going to devastate his disciples. So what he's doing is here is that he's taking these last moments with them to reassure them that, even, uh, that their faith would still be secure even in this act of evil. Even at this most heinous betrayal that would ultimately lead to his crucifixion, that this was all part of God's plan to begin with, and that Jesus was, is in control of those events that are surrounding his death, not Judas and not Satan. But I also want to point out here, it's, it's important to say that um, God being in control, that he is certainly sovereign over the over all that was going on in this time and, and all throughout history, is that he, it's, it's not true that somehow Judas was, that Jesus was the author of Judas's sin. That Jesus wasn't somehow coerced by God into uh, betraying Jesus. He wasn't some innocent bystander who uh, had some, was trapped by fate or by some kind of destiny, that he was not able to try as though he might, as, as hard as he could, he couldn't escape it. That's not what's going on here. God is not the source of sin, God actually is the destroyer of sin. Amen? James says in, in, his, uh, in his first chapter, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and he is enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what's happening really here in, in, in Judas is that he is being lured over these, these years with Jesus, lured and enticed by his own sinful desires. That are, he's being um, carried, away, carried away by the, by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, as Jesus said in one, of his, in one of his parables. And this is what led him to confer with the chief priests, with, um, with all those who um, he had agreed to, to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And I should also point out, because John does, he makes, an, makes a, the point to say that Satan is also uh, implied here as well. That his hand is, is in this as well. And that Satan certainly capitalized on this opportunity. That he, 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 he leveraged Judas' greed uh, in order to try to sabotage God's plan. But what we see here is that, and we can be rest assured in, is that God's plans will not be thwarted. Right? And that Jesus' focus was so set on accomplishing the task of, of glorifying his Father through the cross and redeeming humankind. And that God would actually use Judas's evil, his evil intentions, to actually accomplish 
the greatest display and act of love that the world has ever seen. Isn't that incredible? And, and this is where we, we can sit back for a moment and just, and just ponder that. And, and we, can, we can just be marveled at the sovereignty and the plan and, 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 and the purposes of God. Judas is definitely held responsible for his sin. Again, it's his own sin. And yet, God still causes great good to come out of the sin. The very salvation of your soul, in fact, in my soul, and all those who believe. That Jesus used sin in the sin of the Jewish leaders, he'll end up using the sin of Herod and even Pontius Pilate and so forth to save lost sinners, like you and me, from sin, Satan, and hell. But what we also see here, too, is that it's not going to come without pain. In fact, pain and agony and grief is guaranteed uh, as, as part of uh, the cup that Jesus has taken from the Father. Jesus was still emotionally wounded, even though he knew about what was going to happen. He knew Judas' intentions, and he knew that Jesus would defy him. And that's why it says Jesus was troubled in spirit. And I would go on to say that it was visually apparent as well. It had to have been, because how else would John have known and captured it here and recorded it in verse 21? I mean, think about it. Judas, Judas had been with Jesus from, from the beginning of his ministry, right? He had, he had seen some of the most incredible miracles uh, that Jesus was able to perform. Um, he, he made blind see and people who were lame to walk. He, he heard Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and, that, and how the kingdom of God was here present and it was coming uh, and, and invading history. And, and that Jesus was identifying himself as, as a unique son of God. He was, was there when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And now, he's lying ne- right next to Jesus here. He accepts that, that savory morsel, that act of love, and yet he coldly rejects God's love. He coldly rejects Jesus' love for him. And when I think about that, it reminds me of that, uh, of that, that moment when Jesus is uh, up on the hill and he's looking over Jerusalem and he weeps and laments over uh, their condition, their sinful condition, that they will not turn. Uh, in Matthew 23, it says, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and those that are sent to him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. And that's, that's what's happening here. Jesus was unwilling. And that... He had set his gaze, he, had, he was dead set on uh, getting up and leaving and, and uh, betraying his, his Lord. And then John uh, finishes out um, that, that passage, uh, chapter uh, 13, verse 30, where he says, And it was night. And that's not just a description, if you know anything about John as, as we've gone through it, that that's not just a description of the setting or the time uh, of night or time of day. It was an actually um, a way of communicating and describing Judas's spiritual state, and that he had relinquished himself to the sin and darkness. Jesus said, "This this this has happened. This is this is the, the state of all of all those who don't believe that that judgment is upon them, and this is judgment." He says in John uh, chapter 3, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And that's what Jesus' condition is, that he, he loved his sin and that rejection of love means that eternal judgment is on, is on its way. And that's, that's true for us today as well, that 
God's judgment and His wrath looms over all those who will willingly and willfully reject His Son. And that's why it's important that we ask the question, and the question is asking, and you think on this, is that, do you know Jesus? Right? Not just in a superficial way, but do you have a relationship with Him? Have you accepted His love? And if you haven't, will you, will you receive His love today? And I urge you this morning to do that. And I hope that you will see God as, and Jesus as glorious and loving toward you, even in your sin. And that brings us to the second point this morning. Uh, we just looked at um, love <clears throat> rejected. Now let's look again at uh, the passage and see um, love commanded. So, love commanded. As soon as Judas exits... We see that the, the, the whole tone of Jesus' words and, uh, changes here. And the first thing he, he wants to do is he wants to direct his, his uh, disciples' focus. He wants to put their eyes and their attention on the unfolding glory of God that's taking place right in front of them. Jesus is, is telling us he's soon going to be leaving them. He's going to be beaten, and he's going to be bloodied, and he's going to be nailed to a cross. So turbulence for them and unrest is inevitable. It's coming. But one thing is also certain, and that is that God's glory is being revealed in a way through all this that no creature has ever witnessed since the creation of the world. And that Jesus' suffering and death is the way in which God shows His glorious justice, His holiness, as well as His grace and His love. And notice here that the words that Jesus uses here as He addresses His disciples, He calls them, My little children. I mean, just, it's a beautiful picture. Think about that. There's nothing more calming and reassuring to, to a child who's frightened, but, but that a, a parent would, would wrap them in, in, in his arms and, and comfort them with a hug and a soothing hush. That's, that's the picture that I'm, that I'm seeing that comes to my mind. And that Jesus would go on to do this. He, throughout this, uh, this chapter and the ch- chapters to follow, the last moments that he's with them, that he's going to continue to communicate his love and his his comfort to them, to not, not to be worried or anxious. John uses the same language actually himself later on when he writes his epistles. Uh, he writes his first epistle in order to encourage believers to, to continue to abide in, in Christ's love. And he addresses them as children, he, and as, as those that he is um, uh, trying to comfort and reminding them that they are God's people and that their lives should, should also match their, their identity and that's an incredibly important thing to, that we, we point out this morning, that we, that we see together this morning, is that, that there's an inseparable link between our identity and the way that we live our lives. And John writes these words in, in his first epistle, John, 1 John 4.10, he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, meaning that this is a wrath-absorbing uh, atoning sacrifice for our sins. And, and just to make the point clear, he goes on to say in verse 19 that we love because God first loved us. So what John is saying to his, to his listeners here, to those that he's, um, he's teaching and he's encouraging, is that he's telling his, these believers, and that means us as well, those who, who are believers in Jesus Christ, that our identity is forged in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. It's not found in following God's law, <clears throat> although the law is not bad, it shows us our sin. It, it's not in following the law that we're going to uh, forge our identity. It's not going to be in attempting to shortcut the law either by trying to 
to, to follow some other culturally contrived uh, definition of what love, what, what love is. True love is not relative. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't change. It's not dependent upon whim or feeling. It doesn't, it doesn't change also based on mood or circumstance or on, your, on a convenience. But that the definition of, of true love is as stable as the one who has expressed love from, from the very beginning, uh, from before the foundation of the world, uh, when, when love was poured out and expressed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, the Trinity. So, God is love. And when we look, at, we look at God, we can look to God, we can see that's what love looks like. And there's no better place to look, no, clear, um, no better place where we can more clearly see the love of God than when we look at Jesus Christ. And where do you think John came up with this from? You know, John, it, this is the kind of thing that John is, is going, mulling over in, in his epistle and reminding them about, is that he's actually plagiarizing Jesus, right? He's, he's, he's getting this directly from his, from his teacher, from his Savior. That, and he's hearing it here in the upper room. He's seen it throughout his life, but now he's seeing it now also in the upper room when Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice here that Jesus calls them children first, and then he gives them the commandment, right? God's love comes first. And his love is not just an illustrative love. It's not just an example of love. It's not just first and foremost a standard to live by. But it's first and foremost that, that true love is a heart-transforming, it's a mind-renewing, it's a, a relationship-reconciling, life-altering love. And that when you believe in Jesus the way that he invites us to believe in him, then our lives are dramatically changed. Jesus first tells them that they are clean, and then he commands them to love one another. So, Loving one another is not the initiation into relationship with God. It's not an initiation into his new community, the, the, the church. But it's actually, love is a proper response to the love that first came to us from God. And so when we understand our identity, that we are loved in spite of our sin, and that Jesus' work on the cross transforms us from once enemies now as children, as he calls them, then we are equipped, only then are we equipped to then live lives of love toward one another. And this is the kind of love that's, that's fueled by God's word. Right? It's <clears throat> abiding in God's word. It's, it's encouraging and living and serving one another right, in our community. It's, it's also through the, the power of the Holy Spirit as he whispers into our ears, into our hearts, the love of God. And there's another component to this, this love as well that Jesus points out clearly to his disciples, and that's the, the missional or the evangelical or the evangelistic idea. We call it missional here, and that's, um, that's what's happening, is that Jesus was just on mission. He's also now commissioning his missioning his disciples to go into love. And he's saying to them and to us that if our behavior matches the, our identity as children, if we, that is, that if we live out the love of God toward one another in the same way that we were first loved by God, then the world's going to take notice of it. The, notice is going to, the, the world is going to see that. 
And why is it that they're going to see that? Well, there's, I think there's, a, there's several reasons, but I just want to point out two this morning, and, and I would encourage you in community groups to kind of talk about this in, in, in what ways that our love um, shines to the world and, and how the world is going to view it. But the first one I want to show, show you is... Um, no, it's not it. Go back a couple here. The first one is that um, the love of God is exhibited by God's people, the church, is so remarkably different than the way that people normally see love. So it's not natural. It's not something that's, that, that naturally occurs um, in our world, in our culture, right? So when they see it, it's, they're going to take notice of it. And secondly, I think there's another reason why. Um, and it's the kind of love that people have always, I think, hope existed. That they've always wanted to believe that this kind of love that they're seeing that the church um, living out is the kind of love that they have always wanted or that they've always wanted to experience and, and, and always dreamed that it, that it actually existed. So in some way, God's, God's love resonates with people uh, in our culture, in our world. Just because, I think the reason is because we're all made in the, in the image of God, all made in the image and likeness of God. Yes, it's, it's, it certainly has been, uh, has been marred by sin, but there's an element in, in all of us that still can see and dream of the kind of love that only God can offer. <clears throat> and I, we see that all, I think we see that all throughout culture. One of the ways that it works for me and is, is the fact that, um, and my, my, my wife Brandon will tell you this, I'm a love song junkie, right? I love, I love the sappier and the more melodic, the better it is, the slower it is. That's the kind of music that I like, and she gets annoyed with me a lot of times, but that's just who I am, you know. Give me some Chicago, give me some Bee Gees, you know, give me some Backstreet Boys, just don't judge me, okay? But, <laughs> but musicians and I think artists in our, in our culture have a way of putting their finger on some of the most uh, incredible aspects and beauties of love, like self-sacrificial love, right? Like unconditional love. Uh, love that, that never changes or that, that will be everlasting, a never-ending love. You know, I see this also, and I watch a lot of um, cartoons now because my, my kids are young, so, you know, one of the biggest ones for us is, is the Disney movies, right? And we see aspects of love demonstrated there, too. Um, so, any, any good film... A uh, good book, good story can show us what love looks like because we all have, we're all God's image bearers. So we, we see glimpses of love, but try as though we might, we cannot ever grasp it. We can't ever seem to attain it and, 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 to, and to experience and exude that kind of love. That is until we find the true source of love, Jesus Christ himself. And that's precisely why Jesus is commanding his disciples to go into the world because he wants the world to see a new kind of love. A love that would dazzle them and that would, and that would uh, attract them to Jesus Christ himself. Not to us, but to Jesus. Right? And that's the love that we're called to exhibit. That's the kind of love that we as a church are, are called to live. It's a glorious calling. Right? It's a humbling calling when you think about it. And apart from God's grace, it's, it's actually it's an impossible calling. Right? And, and that's what I want to point out this morning, too, as we move to our, our last point here, um, love perfected. So let me make sure I get to that. There we go. Love perfected. Our text this morning ends with a sobering reminder that uh, though we have been saved by God's grace and we, are, we belong to Him, this side of heaven we're going to continue 
to sin. But we also see here that as the gospel that it reminds us that the gospel that saves us is also the same gospel that sustains us and that is going to progressively sanctify us. That means make us more and more like Jesus, more and more holy. And Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples here, is about to deny him. And he hears this from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. He's, he says, I will go with you to death. And Jesus says, no, no, you won't. Not, you can't go with me this time, but you will deny me three times. And part of the way Peter is talking here is, is somewhat commendable. He certainly has a passion. And, and passion is, um, is a good thing. It's, it's commendable. It's something that we all need. It, it can, can propel us into, to move into action when we're really passionate and enthusiastic about something. But what we do learn here, though, is that passion itself is not a sufficient foundation for faith. And that in the heat of the moment, in passion, with enthusiasm, we'll agree to do almost anything. That, that yes, we, our intentions might be good, but when patience comes, or when, when uh, uh, difficulties come, and patience is needed, then we run into a little bit of problem, right? Uh, when we're tired, when we're frustrated or anxious, when we're depressed, all these things can, can somehow become an obstacle to displaying love. And then when we don't love, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, we, we can, if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the fact that, that, that we haven't loved it, and then, and then that could drive us into further frustration or depression or anger or resentment, whatever that might be. But that's precisely why we need to remember the gospel because the gospel tells us that we are loved by God and that we are adopted as his sons and daughters and we have been declared justified by God because of his righteousness and that that love is the sanctifying work, that gospel is the sanctifying work for us daily. So salvation is not a formal transaction that, that somehow happens. There is, it is, it happens once, but there's also the fact that it's an entrance into relationship with Jesus Christ. And like I said earlier, it's, it's a, it means a, a newly forged um, identity in the person of Jesus Christ. And although we were, are going to daily sin, that we're going to soil our feet, um, we can remember, as John reminds us in his, in his, uh, one of, in his first epistle, that we have an advocate with, with Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and that his righteousness and that his love has conquered our sin, past, present, and future. And that's what Peter was learning here. That's what he was going to learn in the days following Christ's crucifixion after, his, after he betrayed or after he, uh, he denies his Savior. Luke gives us a really uh, interesting account of what's happening in, this, in the upper room as well. He, he also includes Jesus telling... Um, Peter, that he will deny him, but he also gives us this little uh, insight, this little conversation happens too. He says uh, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But, he says, I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, not if, but when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. And what's neat here is that Jesus uses two different words for you. He, he uses the, the plural first, and then he used the singular form of the word. So first he says, he talks of Satan demanding Peter, but we see when he's saying you, he's saying you all. He's, Satan has demanded to have you, Peter, as well as the rest of the disciples. 
and that, and that they would all follow the same path that Judas followed. But um, we also see in, in verse 32 that, he, that Jesus reminds him with a singular you that just as certain as your temptation is, just as certain as you will deny me because I'm telling you it's going to happen, just as certain as all that is the rock-solid certainty also of Jesus' faith and the faith of his, of his fellow disciples. And that their, their faith would sustain them through all that was about to transpire. And, and why is that? Is it because that they're, what, what was their faith built upon? It wasn't built upon, again, it wasn't built upon passion or, or on a, a good intentions, but it was based on the fact that Jesus' work on the cross alone was going to be the foundation of their faith. And Jesus tells Peter that he prays for him and that he will guarantee that he will return to him, in fact, with a greater, a greater strength uh, and, a, and a greater faith and love for him. So true faith is not built, again, we can see from this passage, it's not built on our own strength, and it's, not, it's also not a stagnant, uh, a stagnant uh, faith or, or love. If you are a child of God, your faith is built on, and it's going to continually be cultivated by the grace of God, by his love, and by the Spirit's work in our hearts. So the gospel means that we are secured in our salvation, we are secured in our relationship, that we have eternal security, and that it's a, uh, a kind of love and a, uh, that is going to continue to mature. So be encouraged by that this morning, is that a year from now, two years from now, whatever much time that we have, is that you are, if you are God's own, your love for God, your love for others will continue to grow because of the work of Jesus Christ for us. So if you're, this morning, if you're suffering from some kind of, if, from temptation, from despair, uh, from doubt, from, from anything else that would separate from the love of God, that would separate you from the love of God, remember, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, right? Amen? And that's why it's, in, it's incredibly important that each and every day we remind ourselves of the gospel, that we preach the gospel to ourselves. And it's because it's only by meditating on the beauty of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice in us that is going to give us, uh, it's going to give us hope, that it's going to propel us into, into mission, to, to love others. Sometimes that's, that's, that's the only thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is when, is when I contemplate and meditate on the great abiding love that God has for me and what he has done for me. And that is what propels me to love others, even the unlovable. Remember, you're, you were unlovable too. We're all unlovable, apart, but God loved us still. And so that w- when we're, we're called to love those who mistreat us or those who want, have, want to have nothing to do with, with God himself, we, we, we can love them with the love that God has given us. And that's the difference that we see happening here between Judas and Peter. Judas was going to be, remain hardened to Christ's love. And because of that, he suffered the penalty for that sin. But Peter, on the other hand, if you remember what we talked about earlier about, about the Passover, he took cover under the blood, not of a sacrificial lamb, but under the blood of Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice that died on behalf of the entire world. And because of that, he, 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 he hid himself under the love of Jesus Christ and his lordship. He experienced true forgiveness in the days following his denial of his Lord. So be, remember this. 
that because we belong to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, your identity is forged in Him, because of His gracious love, we are secured in our relationship with Him. We are sustained by it, and that's what gives us life ultimate purpose and worshipful devotion to, to Christ. And that's what is going to progressively change us to be more and more like Jesus so that we can be enabled to be, not just enabled, be empowered to love the unlovable, to love our enemies and to love one another, which sometimes can be the hardest thing to do, which is loving each other, right? And that, that means our love for one another and for Christ is, is constantly being perfected. That's why I said it's love perfected. It's through the work of Jesus Christ that's been applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit until one day, one day when we will be made completely perfect when he returns from us. We, we won't have any obstacles to our worship to, to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, to, uh, and, to, and to what he has done for us. There will be no longer any sin that, or weakness that would keep us from, dis, from properly worshiping our Lord and Savior. So let that be a source of encouragement to you who, who do have an identity in Christ. And if you don't have an identity in Christ, if you have not accepted the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ for you, then I pray that that would be on your heart this morning, that you would, you would relinquish yourself to his love. And a love that starts today but is an everlasting love. Amen. Father, thank you for your, your love for us this morning that we had, uh, you have not left us in mystery, but in our sin you came and you, and you showed us great love. We were your enemies, but now you have called us to be your children and you have purchased us by your redeeming work on the cross. And uh, Father, I just pray that that would continue to mold us and change our hearts, that we would not forget that from day to day, but we would continue to keep that as a focus and that we would encourage one another, that we would love each other, and that we would be reminded of the great love we had, uh, that you have had for us first. And let, let that compel us into, into mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.